Welcome back to the Deliberate Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Allison Dunn, where we are dedicated to helping leaders build strong, thriving businesses. Each episode, we bring a feature an inspiring interview um, to help you lead, to lead you on your leadership journey. And today, I am so excited to introduce Mark Hacera. Um, he is the author of Tanker Pilot, um, Lessons from the Cockpit, and uh, you have a quote in here, and I assume that I assume that this is your quote, Mark. Uh, mm -hmm. Nobody kicks ass without a tanker gas. Nobody. And I think that's <laughs> so awesome. That is the motto of the tanker fleet, and it has been for a long time. Oh, it's the motto. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. I, I saw the like the little underline you sent me, and that was pretty fun. So I just want to do a formal introduction. So uh, Mark is a retired lieutenant colonel um, who flew missions in the U.S. Air Force for over two decades during the Cold War, Afghanistan War, and the Iraq War. And gosh, thank you so much for your service. That's incredible. Thank you. Um, you are the author of the book Tanker Pilot, and this is where you tell stories from your journeys and you share the lessons that you took from the battlefield that we can all apply in our lives, whether we're at work or at home. So Mark, welcome um, to the podcast. It's so awesome to have you here today. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Allison, and I'm so glad you reached out to me, and uh, I've been waiting for this for a couple of days. I've been really excited to talk with you, so this will be a lot of fun. Outstanding. So I just want, um, I want you to be able to kind of provide a quick orientation for our listeners. So I know what you do because my husband's also um, a Army Air Force guy, but um, what is a tanker pilot for anyone who might not know? I'm going to tell you what I tell all my wife's friends. I pass gas for a living. <laughs> but it's incredible amounts of jet fuel. Okay. For 24 and a half years, I was a KC-135 pilot flying one of the oldest airplanes in the Air Force inventory. Many of them are older than I am, and I just turned 63. So that tells you how long they've been around. But the KC-135 has been the world's air refueling workhorse since the 1950s. And I'll give you some really interesting statistics. I take off in my airplane on one mission with 180,000 pounds of jet fuel. That's more gas than you will use in your family vehicle in 27 years. That's how much I'm using on one mission. During the 26 days of the Iraqi invasion, the team that I led of 30 people planned and executed missions. We transferred over 417 million pounds of jet fuel in 26 days. That will allow a Ford F-150 truck to make 2,685 round trips to the moon or seven round trips to the sun. And that's why the tanker's there. It's an airborne gas station where airplanes will come up underneath us. We have a flyable boom in the back that has a extended pipe. We stick in uh, their airplane, um, toggles that lock us together, and we pump gas just like when you go to Costco. Um, we pump a little bit more than you would normally get at Costco, about 6,000 pounds a minute. Uh, the biggest offload I've done is into a B-52, and it was 103,500 pounds of gas on one mission. So uh, 
when we're talking air campaigns and war and humanitarian operations, the KC-135 and the KC-10 touch everything the U.S. does, literally. Tankers are all over the world, and on any given day, uh, there's about, I think it was 150 tanker missions a day is what we're doing. They hook in, up in with today's and today, like today, there's a hundred commissions. Yeah. Going. Yeah. Um, at least 160 to 200 missions a day, uh, offloading around 8 million to 9 million pounds of gas a day, particularly over in the middle East. And we connect with a receiver every four minutes. So that's what tankers do. Um, and it's a fun mission. It was really a fun mission. And, and I really um, enjoyed flying in the airplane I wanted to fly ever since I was a kid. In, um, so being in the air, being in the right place at the right time so that you're receiving the, the, mm -hmm. the craft that needs the gas. Yeah. Um, is that like a, a line at a gas station just waiting to like get more fuel? Great question. Sometimes it's a single receiver like a B-52. Sometimes, um, like during the Desert Storm War, we had to go into Iraqi airspace and pick up 32 F-16s that didn't get gas going to the target, and they were critically low on gas. The airplane that came to my airplane first only had 800 pounds of gas in it. Six minutes is how long he had before he ran out of gas when we hooked up to him. So sometimes we have eight, sometimes we have one. Sometimes we're in formation where there's four tankers and eight receivers on each one of us. So sometimes it's a long line at the gas station. Sometimes it's a short line at the gas station. So typically in the, the Middle East right now, we'll have four to six receivers on us at any given time. And we will give them anywhere between 10 to 15,000 pounds of gas each airplane. So this aerodynamic um, exercise that happens, yes. um, did you ever have any close calls or, you know, just like complete concern, like now you're attached and... Yes. My very first combat support mission in 1990, <clears throat> very first one, we connected with a Royal Saudi Air Force F-15 and he saw us all up there taking pictures in the window. And so he's waving at us and talking to us and everything like that. Wasn't watching what he was doing and ran underneath us so that we couldn't pull the pipe out. And he broke the nozzle off of the end of our boom and gas was just flying out of the back because the pumps were still on. And he got out of the way and you could see our big nozzle and it's a big piece of metal still in his airplane and and of course it belonged to me and um one of the funniest lines i've ever heard during air refueling he comes up to us and he says i need more gas and i says you just took the way only way we can give you gas and he looked over like this looks up at us and he goes we make air mess no <laughs> his Saudi yes <laughs> i said yes that's exactly what he did and he goes okay i go home now and he just left. And uh, three days later, that big piece of metal showed up on a table in our, uh, in our maintenance office. So they'd send it back to us. But most of the time, 
it goes without any problems. Um, we have an interphone system so that when the two airplanes are hooked up, we can talk back and forth uh, through the boom and, and we'll discuss everything from football games to what kind of Chick-fil-A sauce you have in your, in your room. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. There's uh, actually a really good video of guys uh, talking back and forth and they're talking about how Chick-fil-A really takes care of the troops and they had sent uh, packages of their Polynesian sauce over to the Gulf region and in a box. And I think there was like 3000 packages and they were all divvying them up and they were talking about that while they were air fueling. <laughs> so, that's, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, Mark, I'm super curious. Um, over over the years, what have been some of the roles that you've played um, in the Air Force in your career? Uh, I've been an instructor pilot. I've also been an instructor at two schools. One of them I created. I helped create. What? The Air Force has its version of Top Gun, Allison. It's called the Air Force Weapons School. They just had their graduation this weekend. And I was the deputy commander of the initial cadre of about 16 officers and non-commissioned officers that created the KC-135 Weapons School. 482 academic hours, 18 five-hour flights, uh, three three-hour sims, and a graduate-level paper is accomplished in 19 weeks. Wow. Yeah. So it was the graduate level, PhD level school for tankers. And we started that in 1999. Uh, this class, we have now over 200 graduates and it's been going for 20 years. So it's, uh, it's going very well. And that was probably, I tell everybody this, the worst assignment of my career because nobody thought that there should be a tanker school like this. But we kept going and kept doing it. And our third class was going through on 9-11. And the next day, several of our graduates got sent all over the world to create air refueling plans to defend the United States to prepare for operations in Afghanistan. So it was one of the most rewarding experiences I've had, okay? Um, I've taught at an uh, National Defense University, uh, international students, which was a lot of fun meeting all the different international students, German, Italian, we had a Chilean ship captain, so forth. But uh, mostly it's uh, going around the world, passing gas into receivers and international partners and so forth. That was also another really fun aspect of working with US allies and learning their culture and um, People ask me, well, what was your favorite place? And I says, the one where I enjoyed flying the most or the one where I enjoyed the food the most? <laughs> uh, which one did you enjoy flying the most? Oh, the flying assignment in Okinawa, Japan was by far the best assignment I had. And, and it was the most educational assignment I had too. A great learning experience. We had a, a terrific wing commander who told all of us, I want you flying in everybody else's airplanes. If you're a tanker pilot, I want you flying in the F-15. If you're a helicopter pilot, I want you flying in the airborne warning control airplane. And so we could all fly amongst the different airplanes. We really got to know each other well to the point that I could hear a person's voice in my headset, Allison, and I knew exactly who was sitting in the cockpit. 
-hmm. And when your team gets to that point where you can recognize voices, you know you're on the same sheet of music. And it was a wonderful assignment to be there under that kind of leadership, working with those kinds of people, making a real difference in the world, flying missions, uh, training missions, and humanitarian missions throughout the Pacific. It was just a lot of fun. Um, so, go back to your other question. Where's, where did you enjoy uh, the best food? Oh, man, that's a tough one, okay? Um, I spent five months in Italy mm -hmm. during the Kosovo campaign, and nothing beats an uh, oven that has a fire in it and quattro formaggi pizza, four cheese pizza. But we had a wonderful sit-down, kneel-down place in Okinawa where we got the really good uh, Japanese noodles, Japanese noodle house, which was fantastic. And all of my kids loved it. So I've had some really great things to eat. I'm not a fish eater. I don't do seafood. Um, uh, my wife does that kind of stuff. But uh, uh, again, there was just great places to eat. And, and I recently took my wife over to Europe and took her to some of the places I had been and uh, got to try some of the food and so forth and go, oh yeah, I took off from that runway and that runway and that runway. <laughs> it was really a lot of fun. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Curious. So you brought up Top Gun, um, which was, which was a pivotal movie in my young teenage mm -hmm. year and it's coming back out. I think literally yes, it is. this week, right? Uh, they, I think they put it off until the fall is what oh, they did. Oh, really? Okay. I know. Well, I was radar. so disappointed. I was so disappointed when I, when I said, you know, I'd really love to see that movie, but I think they put it off until around Thanksgiving or something. But you Okay. Know. Well, I kind of get it because it's, mm -hmm. you want to roll it out when people can actually go to the movies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that made me think, you know how they, you know, like they had names for each other. So, you know, one, one guy was Goose. Do you have a pilot name or code? I do have a nickname. I have a, okay. a tactical call sign. My call sign is Sluggo, S-L-U-G-G-O. Okay. And okay. you see how I signed that in the book at the bottom? Yes, I did, but I didn't understand it. So thank you. I was, I weighed 11 pounds and was 23 and a half inches tall when I was born. Ow. So I, I was a big Sluggo. <laughs> I got it in pilot training and that's where it comes from. Oh, that's great. Yeah. All right. Now I can, now that kind of finishes the circle for me. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Everybody's got one. A lot of, you know, and we actually have a call sign night where we will assign call signs to people. And it's really kind of fun because it's either something about your character, uh, something really dumb you did or something like that, you know, and, um, when we have those nights where you're given your call sign is uh, really a lot of fun. I bet. Good time. Super cool. um, in your book, um, you mentioned that at one point you were fired from your dream job. Yes. And feeling like you'd hit a wall in your career. So um, I, I know that people will relate to that. Either they've been there or they're feeling like they're there right now. So um, share with us what happened next. Um, that job that I told you about that was the worst four years of my career was actually my dream job. And about uh, four years into it, a colonel that was our commander fired me April of 2001. Uh, previous to that time, I was, oh, my throttles were up. I, I was enjoying uh, teaching. 
you know, even though we were getting so much flack on, on trying to create this school, uh, we knew it was going to make a difference in our community. And it really has. And I got fired. He called me in one day and he says, uh, you're going to have to find another job. You're not working here anymore. So I went to the wing job at Fairchild. They were going to put me in a position that I really didn't want. Uh, it was kind of like being the Maytag repairman for the base. And I thought, why would you put a guy with all of this education and training in such a position? And I said, look, just let me go down to a squadron. Let me teach young kids how to fly, how to do all of this stuff. And they said, yeah, okay, we'll do that. And like I said, that was April of 2001 and Tuesday morning, 9-11 changed everything. And for a long time, I didn't know what I was going to do, where I was going to go. I was a Lieutenant Colonel. I wasn't going to get promoted because I was, I had been a squadron commander. And so you're kind of at that wall, Allison, where you're like, where do I go from here? What do I do now? And, and it was depressing and, and I'd get up and go to work and I still had and really enjoyed teaching the concepts of how to do air refueling and how to fly the airplane. But I knew that my career was over and I thought, well, do I get out of the air force now? And what do I do? And then, like I said, nine 11 happened. I got a call at five fifty in the morning from one of my wife's closest friends who was living in Boise at the time. Really? At 5.50, and she's going, where's Mark? Where's Mark? Where's Mark? And, well, he's asleep right here next to me. Stacy, it's 5.50 in the morning. What's up? And she says, an airplane has hit a building in New York. Turn on the TV. And I'm kind of a news junkie anyway. And so I turned it on the TV. I see the building burning. And I'm thinking to myself, how could a pilot with thousands of hours run into a building on a clear and visibility unlimited day, but my subconscious was going, we're under attack. And then I saw the second airplane hit and ran to the shower. Um, and while I was in the shower, my wing commander called to Mark's got to come in right now. And eight days after 9-11, I deployed to the Middle East to run air refueling operations across the entire Middle East, which became my really dream job under some really bad circumstances because we were dealing with so many problems of fuel and airplanes and getting people over there and so forth. But uh, when you have all of those kinds of challenges, when you've gotten fired, you, you have uh, real confidence issues and so forth. But I didn't realize God has a plan for you. You may not know what that plan is at the very moment. And you're kind of three days from nowhere. And then all of a sudden I was doing everything that I had been training people to do. I was the chief of the air refueling control team in charge of all air refueling through the Middle East for about a year and a half for all five nations, the Dutch, the French, the English, the Australians, us. And I was running basically air refueling for we were averaging 265 sorties a day, about 11 million pounds offload a day. Um, so I want your listeners to understand when you get to that wall, just remember there are things on the other side. There are things on the other side of being fired 
that may be much, much better for you. I call it God's vector check. God's uh, vector check. That's yeah. What said. Yeah. God's vector check. Because I was really wondering, what am I going to do? And then everything changed, like I said, on that one particular day. And I know a lot of people right now have, are maybe out of a job or waiting to get a job or go back to work and, and so forth. Take this time to improve your skills and improve your life because when God's vector check comes, be ready for it. Be ready for it. Um, I love the fact that you're calling. Is vector check uh, just a term that you just made up or is it from something? It's something that we use in the military. Okay. okay. A vector love check that. means I'm on this heading and now they want me to go on this heading. Okay. It might okay. be a one degree adjustment. It might be a five degree adjustment. But uh, that vector check is, and understand, Heavenly Father wants you in a position where he can use you. And I was trained and educated to be put in that position, even though I didn't know it. I had confidence issues. I'd been fired. And here I was now running air refueling across the entire Middle East. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> um, you... Um... I, I think this is a quote uh, from you. You say, failure is the best human learning environment. Mm -hmm. And I think this ties into your vector check and, you know, feeling like, you know, not sure where you're intended to be. Um, and so I'm using failure as, uh, as a term that kind of almost mm -hmm. the, the bottom of the vector check where you, before you head back up. Yes. Um, what failure did you learn the most from? That one. That one. Being fired from that job. Because you look back and you think to yourself, you do kind of a self-analysis and, and your mind is sometimes your worst enemy. And you think to yourself, I'm not good enough. I wasn't smart enough. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I should have been more engaged here and so forth. And you kind of talk yourself out of your own confidence. And so that particular failure... Um, I think was one of my greatest learning tools because again, it made me go back and think, you know, oh, I'm so depressed. I didn't do this right. And I got fired and I'm now at the end of my rope. What am I going to do? But yet situations change. COVID-19 has changed all of our lives and look for the opportunities post COVID-19 when things start opening back up, when governors start opening back up, mayors start opening things back up. And I think all of your listeners, all of your audience is going to realize, wait a minute, here's a great opportunity that I didn't think was coming. You mentioned before we started here, when you were talking that you've had some great people on over the last couple months because we're locked in our houses. We're looking for things to do and we're looking for those opportunities and that's the one thing I think I would tell all your audience. Yes, failure hurts, okay? Failure sucks. Embrace the suck. Keep moving forward. Keep going forward. Because you never know what opportunity is going to come at the end of that. And there's a great quote by, of all people, Will Smith, in a video that I watched where he says, your greatest joy your greatest happiness is just beyond your greatest fears. And that's one of the things I teach about when I get up on stage and I talk about fear. Yes, 
it hurts right now. People are out of work. How am I going to pay my bills and so forth? But the time is coming if you are prepared where your greatest fears will turn into your greatest joy and happiness. 100%. I completely agree with you. Yeah. Um, Mark, one of the um, things that I always like to ask guests um, having an interview is what is your number one leadership tip that you would share with our audience? And I've had a couple of weeks to think about this since I've been listening to your, uh, your podcast. Good. So I'm ready for it. All right. So what's your, what's your tip? Trust. 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 May I give you two stories? Yes, please. We were running intense tanker operations and we didn't have a way to kind of analyze what we were doing. Were we measures of performance and measures of effectiveness? Are we doing the right things and are those right things moving us in the right direction? And one of the guys working for me came up to me and he has mad skills with Excel. I do not have mad skills with Excel. Weibo, that was his call sign, does. And he came up to me and he says, hey, I've been working on something. Let me show it to you real quick. And what it was, was an analysis of all of our operations based on an Excel spreadsheet that would show us all of the trends, a negative or positive, how the airplanes were being maintained, how much gas we were offloading, the number of sorties, uh, airplane missions we were flying and so forth. But particularly, how hard we were flying the pilots and the air crews and not understanding Excel, but knowing that he did, I trusted him and I told him, I want you to run with this. I don't understand it because I don't understand putting formulas in the little boxes, but you do. And two days later he came up to me and he showed it to me. I says, start doing that now. And I told all my team, I said, this is what we're going to send out to all 15 bases. And the information we were getting back from that was fabulous because it allowed us to be more effective, more efficient. And that was because I empowered Weibo to move forward. I trusted him, not knowing how to do Excel, but knowing he did, empowering him to be able to make that. And we actually went back and used that to defend decisions we were making to generals and international officers and so forth. And it was a great, powerful tool. As a company, your customers must trust you. And one of the things that we have in the air refueling community, particularly the Air Force KC-135, KC-10 community, is our customers trust us implicitly. And here's the story from that. On the opening night of the Afghanistan air campaign in October of 2001, Mongo is his call sign, had the newest lieutenant in the carrier air wing on his wing. They were flying at night, they got to their tanker. There were six airplanes already lined up on their tanker. They would be number seven and eight. They wouldn't get enough gas and it would make them late for their target. The tanker pilot told him there's another airplane 370 miles to the north orbiting over the town of Herat. Go there and get gas. Now, 
he's low on gas. He's got a brand new lieutenant on his wing and he's flying it on night vision goggles. And he has to go 370 miles across the Registan and the Dashte Imargo Desert. Dashte Imargo in Dari means desert of death. And he's flying across that low on fuel, but he had such trust in our uh, community that he was able to take a greater amount of risk and assume a greater amount of risk. He got a radar lock on on the airplane at 80 miles. At about 20 miles, he sees it visually on his night vision goggles. But we have to refuel the Navy with a basket that's on our, on our boom in the back. It's kind of like a hummingbird. They come up and they plug a probe into it. And it wasn't until he got about three miles away that he saw the basket on the boom. He had to come up and he only had about, I think he said 2,000 pounds in his tanks, which meant if the tanker wasn't there, he was going to have to eject out of the airplane and become a survivor on the ground on the opening night of an air campaign. But he was able to plug the lieutenant in, then plug himself in, get the gas he needed, go to his target, do the mission he was supposed to, and then return. That's trust. Big time. That's trust. And as leaders in our companies and leaders of our, our teams and in our communities, that's the kind of trust you want to build with your uh, customers and the people around you so that with your word, they will assume a greater amount of risk because they trust what you say. They trust what you do. They know that you will be in the right place at the right altitude, at the right speed, configured the way you're supposed to be ready to pass gas based on your word. Trust. I, um, I think that that's one of the first words that I use when someone says, why, why does someone even hire a coach and why do they choose you? And I, my first thing is I gain their trust. Yes. Yeah. So that's a big one. Um, I don't know if it's the same answer, but I'm going to ask the question in a slightly different way. Sure. Um, what's the most important lesson about leadership that you've learned during your career? Relationships. Okay. Creating relationships. Can you give me an example? Single? I can. Okay. I was working in the command center where the air campaign was being run from for the invasion of Iraq. We had about a thousand people in there and I worked in what was called the master air attack plan cell, the map cell. And one night as I looked around and we're, we're working on a really, really tough problem uh, supporting the troops that were on the ground. Uh, having the right fighters and the bombers and that giving them enough gas and so forth. And I looked around the room and there was about 15 to 20 people that I had known throughout my career that were now in that group of people. We had established relationships early. One of the Navy planners had been my next door neighbor in 1990s. And Trigger was his call sign. He was one of the planners for the Navy. Um, the chief of the Navy planning cell happened to be in a captain on a ship that I had been on. And 
for a week and he had allowed me to go up in a Navy airplane, uh, get a catapult takeoff and an arrested landing. Um, he was working about 30 feet away from me. And as I looked around the room, I realized all of us knew each other. All of us knew each other's strengths and weaknesses. We'd worked together before in some really tough situations. And now all of us are working together to perform the different missions and tasks, planning, executing them, and so forth. And it wasn't until much later where one of the Navy captains who was on one of the carriers we were supporting called me and says, do you realize how we all knew each other? And I thought about that one night when we were working on this problem. Relationships is a big deal. Develop those relationships with the people around you. <clears throat> you never know if someone passing 10 feet away from you is the person that will make you successful. There's so many stories about people meeting somebody on the street saying, I am this person, I am, and I do this, or people going out and <clears throat> meeting those people that can help them make successful. Um, and those relationships sometimes take a long time to build, but I'll tell your listeners one thing that I do. Whenever I'm going to a foreign country, and I know I'm going to be working with a team like, for instance, this Jordanian team we were working with. I learned a few uh, Arabic uh, sayings like, hello, how are you? Thank you. Goodbye. Those kinds of things. And I remember being in this meeting. And of course, we're going around the room introducing each other. And, and there's about 20 of us in the room. And I looked at this uh, Jordanian uh, COO and I said, Salam Aleikum Sadiq, Kaifalik. And he just beamed because I was saying, hello, my friend, how are you? And that really did a lot to create a great relationship between his team and mine because he knew I'd been there, uh, sampled the food as always, okay? But I understood their culture and I was willing to take some time to learn about his culture, about his language. <clears throat> and it really helped break down some of the barriers that we had later on where we had to work out some, some problems and, and so forth. And, but again, because we had strengthened that relationship through just learning a few things about their culture and being able to say, hello, how are you? Thank you, goodbye. Those kinds of things in their language went a long way to help create that and cement that relationship. Yeah, I such gold advice. Thank you. Sure. Um, your your book um, is about failure and resistance and compassion and opportunity and vision and initiative and discipline. And mm -hmm. I, um, the essence those are like a virtues that I think our our certainly our nation yes. um, needs to be. Um, relying on as we struggle mm -hmm. through the variety of things that we have going on right now mm -hmm. um, because we're finding our way forward. Um, is there any final advice that you would um, suggest to those who recognize um, that we need to adjust and um, overcome? There's a chapter in the book where I talk about compassion and it's something that you're not seeing a lot in the news right now, is it? No. Reaching out to help somebody 
that is having a hard time. Um, the story in the book talks about, I was watching CNN one night and, and you cannot believe the number of times the American military has spun up based on a CNN news report. I can go on about stories. I can, I can imagine. Yeah. This particular night, actually it was, uh, in the morning we were watching the TV screen and Korean airlines flight 801 crashed in the mountains, the hills short of the runway in Agana Guam. And I reached over and I grabbed my boss and I said, we're going to, we're going to get tasked here soon. And sure enough, about 30 minutes later, the vice president Al Gore's office called, you know, what can you guys do? And we were already working on a plan. The one of the survivors, the only U.S. survivor, if I remember, was a little nine-year-old girl by the name of Gracie Chung. She was badly burned because she would not leave her mother. And many of the Koreans that were on the airplane were also badly burned. But because the United States is such a compassionate nation, and I hope your audience understands that in spite of all that you're seeing on the news and all these terrible stories you're hearing, we are a compassionate nation. And whenever somebody needs help, who do they call? They always call the United States. And we had to develop a mission to take the National Transportation Safety Board GO team about 17 people from Washington DC to Guam to investigate the crash. And while they were there, we had to bring some of these burn victims back home to the army and military facilities that specialize in burn victims. And I think when we become successful and we have the ability to help people in need, whether it be monetarily, emotionally, spiritually, physically, whatever it happens, whatever it might be, take those opportunities to show compassion. Even walking down, uh, we have a great bike path behind us that I walk on. And I always take the time to say hello to everybody I talk to. How are you? How are you doing today? And I think this world would be so much better if we just took the time to show a little bit more compassion. Compassion to those that are around us, compassion to those that need help, compassion to um, people that we, they say, oh, I'm fine. You know, we all know what fine really means. And uh, lift them up and take every opportunity you can, <clears throat> particularly when you become successful, it gives you a greater ability to show compassion. And uh, that's one of the great things that I've learned through not only my personal life, but uh, my military career. That was probably one of the most rewarding missions that I helped plan and execute. That's one that has always stuck in my mind. Um, and knowing that little Gracie Chung and five other of these Koreans were able to come here to the States and get treated and, and having a hand and being able to bring them back. Unfortunately, Gracie died during her third surgery, but four Korean nationals had a great story to tell when they got home. And there's a monument on the hill now. And every year they have 
a lot of the passengers come back and, you know, they shake hands and they hug each other and, and they're constantly telling the Americans, we are so happy you guys got involved in this and the great amount of compassion you showed us by helping us. Mark, I, um, I can't thank you um, enough for one, your service, first and foremost. Um, yeah. um, secondly, for um, sharing such sage advice. So uh, building trust, um, creating strong relationships, you know, showing compassion to yes. when you come across. And then my two favorites, which are um, the vector check idea, like the concept. <laughs> I think I yeah. may actually give you 100% credit for it, but I feel like it has to be part of my my compass, my deliberate directions concepts. So I'm gonna yeah. put that one out and to embrace the suck, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, embrace failure as an opportunity to learn. And a lot of times we think, oh my gosh, you know, this really sucks and everything like that. You need to turn that mindset around what am I to learn from this? Is there a skill set that I need? Is there a mindset that I need to change that failure and, and what it does to us to something positive? And that's one of the things that I speak about in a keynote speech I give called aviate, navigate, and communicate. That's, and I use God's vector check during that, uh, during that speech and talk about Maybe I'll go and search that one out and listen to it so that I can uh, do it justice. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Tanker Pilot is available on Amazon um, in the show notes uh, below this section. I am going to include how to um, actually follow Mark on Facebook and his Instagram account. And um, I'm going to give you a link right to one of his keynotes so you can learn more about the vector check also. Mm -hmm. okay. Again, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure um, spending time with you here today. Thank you very much for having me on. I really enjoyed this. And uh, uh, remember, audience, the good days are coming. The great days are just around the corner. You'll be good. Excellent advice. Thank you. You're welcome.